ask you to pray, uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, there is salvation. Um, and it comes as a free gift of the grace of your son, our Lord Jesus. And we receive it not by doing anything to earn it, but by faith. And so we pray that uh, we would know that, seal that to us really today. Um, that we may be convinced of it and that nothing would shake it. Shake us from it. Um, Thank you for the scripture. I pray that you would open our eyes to see it, our ears to hear it, uh, our very hearts to believe it, and lives to live it. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy in chapter 4. I want to read verses 1 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 4, please. We've been on these passages, or on these verses anyway, for a couple of weeks. And um, I want to bring these at least uh, to a close. So First Timothy in chapter 4, please, and verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to de- deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you've followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now it's that last bit of that last sentence that I want, if God will help me, to take up today this expression uh, because we've set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, I want to take that up because it can be confusing to us because we hear this expression that God is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And we wonder, what does Paul mean by that really? I mean, after all, uh, we know that not all people are saved. So in what sense, then, does Paul mean that God is the Savior of all people? And by saved, of course, we mean this sense of being saved from the wrath of God. Being saved from our sins. That sense that Jesus has died for us, thus trusting in him, we are saved from our sin. What sense in which then is God the savior of all people? Because we know, as we read the scripture, that not all are saved. We know that. We we read verses this morning in our responsive reading, kind of to front and load all of this. So, So all this would be in our minds. We know that there's salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Thus, those who do not believe in Jesus are still in their sins and, and thus not saved. That's the, the clear teaching of Scripture. You know the famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. And, and Jesus gives commentary on that, almost
almost immediately we say, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so, so we find that commentary from the Apostle John on, these, on this particular idea, this particular notion that there's salvation through grace that comes to us by faith in Jesus. Um, Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life, that there isn't any other way to the Father but through him. So if we don't come through him, how then can any be saved? And we know not all go to the Father through Jesus. Thus, not all are saved. And so, again, in what sense does Paul mean that God is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Are they saved? Are we saved? Those who believe in some special sense and everybody else is saved in some non-special sense? What's he really mean by, by that? And we know, of course, for those who aren't saved, that they're still in their sins, thus, in fact, condemned. And we find this in the teaching, clearly, of Jesus, for instance, in Matthew in chapter 7, Jesus, uh, speaking in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, uh, says, um, Not everyone who says to me, to Jesus himself, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, verse 21. But the one who uh, does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of of lawlessness. So you get a sense that Jesus is saying this is a reality that though people come to me even and, and, and think I know them, but I really don't. And so they'll be cast out, if you will, that is, that is really not, not saved. And then Jesus, just in chapter 8 of Matthew, uh, uh, Matthew lays out for us that a man comes to Jesus uh, that uh, he, would, he would heal his servant. And, and Jesus is amazed at this man's faith. And so in chapter 8, uh, in verse middle of verse 10, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, uh, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be, that is those in Israel, will be um, thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus gives us this image of those who are cast away, that there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We don't know precisely what that means, although you know what that means, to weep and to really gnash teeth, that is to be anxious uh, and to be concerned. And so he says that there is what takes place. And then over in chapter 10 of Matthew, in verse uh, 28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him, that would be God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now when Jesus uses this word hell, it's, it's the word Gehenna which is a real place outside of Jerusalem. And it's a place where garbage was burned, a place where you knew that you couldn't really live, although if you lived there, it would be, it'd be horrible. And so that's the image that he, he uses, Jesus does, that we translate as, as hell. Um, in fact, it was a historically very famous, though condemned place, that very place, Gehenna. It was the Valley of Hinnom, where if you read in the Chronicles and Kings, you'll find was a place 
where the ancient Israelites sacrificed their children to the Amorite god Molech. And so it was a condemned place, and everyone knew it. So when Jesus spoke of hell, Gehenna, Jesus spoke of hell, they knew that this would be a place where it would be misery uh, forever, this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, this place on another occasion where Jesus said, where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. And you say, what exactly would that be like? And the answer, of course, is we don't know exactly what that would be like, but it doesn't sound pleasant. In fact, it sounds worse than any other existence that we could possibly think about. And yet that's from Jesus concerning those who do not have faith in him. Jesus tells parables. He tells parables about the wheat and the weeds. And they sort of grow up together. And he speaks about the fact that it's, it's the evil one who sows these weeds among, among the wheat, if you will. And he says at the end of the age, what will happen is that all of this will be bundled up and the weeds will be thrown away into this fire. And you get the sense, yes, I get it, Jesus. I understand what you're talking, what you're talking about. Jesus talks about a pair, about, about, about a bridegroom coming and there are ten virgins there waiting for him. Five who are waiting properly, if you will, with their lamps lit. Five without and the ones without are cast out. They're not allowed to enter in. We know the parable of the talents and we know the one who is the unprofitable, the unfaithful servant. He is the one who is cast out at the end. We know what Jesus spoke of in the coming of the Son of Man, that everyone will be divided as the sheep and goats and some for everlasting life and some for everlasting punishment as he, as he puts it. And so we wonder, Paul, what do you mean when you say that God is the Savior of all people. That doesn't sound like those people know God as Savior or that God is their Savior. In fact, it appears very much that God is their, is their judge. So what do you really mean? And then what do you mean by this expression, especially those, especially those who believe? Now, now, in the history of the church, there's a notion that is, comes under the rubric of universalism. That is, and on the one hand, that there are many ways to God apart from Christ. And on the other hand, that all people, therefore, are saved. That all people will end up in the very presence of God, in glory, in heaven, on the new earth, however you want to express that. That all people are saved. And that even if hell exists, that it only exists in the sense of a purgatory kind of hell, if you will. Only in a sense where people, even in hell, will ultimately eventually come to their senses and, and, and turn to God, if you will, and then that he will bring them to himself. This sense of universalism. It's peaked its head in the church from the very beginning, all the way back to the third century. A church father named Origen uh, held this view and some of his disciples as well. We've seen it through the Middle Ages. We've seen it in various times. Most recently, however, the reason I raise this is that there was a Time um, uh, magazine article about a book that's come out recently called Love Wins. And what makes this um, particularly um, alarming to us is that it's written by a man with a large following who claims to be an evangelical and writes a book that simply says that God has won because God loves and because God desires all people to be saved. 
Because God is sovereign and powerful, therefore all people will be saved. And that's simply it. And by evangelical, I mean that he's a person who ascribes in some sense to a high view of Scripture, believing in the authority of Scripture, believing that all of this is really contained in Scripture. And so because this book had a huge uh, publicity uh, um, prior to its even release, and uh, will no doubt be bought by many, um, Time Magazine did a story on it, and, and, and they say this concerning this book. Works by evangelical Christian pastors tend to be pious, or at least on, at least, uh, on theological message. The standard Christian view of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is summed up in the Gospel of John, which promises eternal life to whosoever believeth in him. So far the time writer is right. Traditionally, the key is the acknowledgement that Jesus is the Son of God who, in the words of the ancient creed, for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was made man. In the evangelical ethos, one either accepts this and goes to heaven or refuses and goes to hell. Again, uh, the Time magazine writer is right. He then speaks of the author of the book Love Wins, Rob Bell, saying, Bell, a tall, that's really the problem, um, He's tall. Um, Tall people are not good. Bell, a tall 40-year-old son of a Michigan federal judge, begs to differ. He suggests that the redemptive work of Jesus may be universal, meaning that, as his book's subtitle puts it, every person who ever lived could have a place in heaven, whatever that turns out to be. Such a simple premise, with with Easter at hand, this was published right before Easter, This slim, lively book has ignited a new holy war in Christian circles and beyond. And it has. It's reared up this sense of universalism again, that everybody is saved. But but what makes this one, again, alarming is the circles out of which it comes. Time magazine writer goes on to say this. The traditional reaction is understandable, that is, that there should be a sense that this is heretical. For Bell's arguments about heaven and hell raise doubts about the core of the evangelical worldview, changing the common understanding of salvation so much that Christianity becomes more of an ethical habit of mind than a faith based on divine revelation. I don't know exactly what the Time article writer means by becomes more of an ethical habit of mind than a faith based on divine revelation. But it seems, at least this to me, that the church has always taken what Scripture teaches about salvation, what Scripture teaches about Christ, what Scripture teaches about the cross, what Scripture teaches about faith in Christ, what Scripture teaches thus about salvation, and thus heaven, or the new earth, and hell, by revelation. We take it from Scripture not from our ethical mind, meaning not from our evaluation of Scripture as to whether or not God is right in doing that or wrong in doing that. If we believe that that's what the Scripture teaches, yet that that shows that God is unloving and thus God is wrong in that, therefore everyone should be, will be ultimately saved, then that's our ethical minds, our ethic, as opposed to 
the biblical revelation. And then he concludes with this statement, particularly galling to conservative Christian critics, is that Love Wins is not an attack from outside the walls of the evangelical city, but a mutiny from within, a rebellion led by a charismatic, popular, and savvy pastor with the following. It's Bell's Christianity, less judgmental, more fluid, open to questioning the most ancient of assumptions. Is this on a rise? And then quoting the author, quoting Rob Bell, he says, I've often wondered if there's a massive shift coming in what it means to be a Christian, that something new is in the air. Well, frankly, it's passages like the one I read that leads some to those kinds of those kinds of assumptions of universalism. If God is the savior of all people, then why would all not be saved? And perhaps there's some special thing for believers, but what is it again that Paul means by this? Now, Rob Bell says there's something new in the air. We know there isn't anything new in the air. As the author of Ecclesiastes said, there's nothing really new under the sun. It's all the same. As I read through uh, Rob Bell's book, I realized that this isn't anything other than a very cleverly put, uh, creatively written uh, summary of liberal Protestantism that's been with us for some, at least a generation, if not two or three. Same stuff, really. But again, it's coming in a very appealing way. So the question for us is, what does Paul mean by this? Is it really true that all are saved? As I've studied church history, I've often wondered the appeal of universalism. Why is it that it it keeps coming back to us when it seems the scripture is so clear about what it means to really be one who belongs to Jesus, one who's really saved, that the clear statements that there is only salvation through faith in Jesus, that Jesus is indeed the only way, the only truth, the only life. There is no way to the Father except through him. The clear delineation of judgment at the end, especially in the revelation that speaks so clearly of all of that. So I wonder, why does it keep Uh, rearing its head, and and why even in our own generation? And I suppose just in in thinking about that, uh, we live presently, and I think in some measure it's always been true, we live in a great measure in what's called a pluralistic society, meaning that, that no one wants to hold to any particular absolute truth. There has to be many ways for everything. And so there's this sense that we're swimming tremendously upstream if we hold to any sense of absoluteness concerning uh, salvation, reconciliation with God, that is by faith in Jesus and in Jesus only and no other way. That really swims upstream in our culture. But I think this too, and that is simply the sadness of thoughts of hell. I must say to you that it's a discipline in my own life to think about hell. I can't imagine anything that I would want to think less about, you see, than hell. I mean, more about than hell. Because, you see, who wants to contemplate the eternal punishment, the eternal destruction, the eternal condemnation of anyone. We all have friends that we know are not believers. 
How do we sustain that kind of thinking about that? Now, we must because we're Bible readers. We read through the scriptures. We understand what that means. And, and, and it's good for our souls to think it through so that we have a sense of not the only sense, not the only rationale, not the only motivation for telling people about Jesus. But certainly it's in there, in the mix of that. We know the reality of life, and we know the reality of heaven, we know the reality of hell. But, but, but none of us, I think, at least me, really wants to think about that. In one sense, we would love for it not to be true. And so I think if we can find a way out, any way out, we have a tendency to move to move really in that direction. And, and we think too, just the witness of our own hearts to think, how will eternity be filled with joy if I know that hell even exists? And to all of those, I think at least, in, at some emotional level, whether it's societal and friendship, whether it's personal, whether it's leads this notion of, of universalism to, to strike its head. Isn't there another way out? Isn't there another way that we can think about this? Isn't there another way we can present this? Well, wouldn't everybody like us better if we didn't have this hell thing in the middle? And, and wouldn't our lives be more comfortable if we didn't think about this in the context of our own lives or the context of other people? So, so I think that kind of produces, if you will, this, this kind of thing. But there are also passages of Scripture, like the one that we have. I mean, these people aren't stupid who, who write these things, who think these, these things through. There's, there's passages, for instance, we read one just uh, a while ago when we were in 1 Timothy in chapter 2 that speaks of, of, of God's heart, God's desire for all people to be saved. Remember in 1 Timothy in chapter 2, um, in verse 3, Paul says, This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all and is a testimony given at the proper time. And people say, well, if God wants all people to be saved, uh, if Christ is a ransom for all, then why aren't all saved? Thus all must be. And, and, and we understand. We see the context of these passages and know that the Bible doesn't teach this universalism. But if you take one piece out and one piece out, you can have these sentences, these statements that, that might give rise, give hope to this fact that, that really there is this universalism that all in the end will be saved. Um, but we know that when Paul writes to Timothy, he's saying, yes, God desires all to be saved. That's his heart. On the same sense that a school teacher wants all their students to pass. We say, well, God can make it happen, and that's true, but we know he has this bigger thing going on in the context of his own glory. And all people, not just Jews, but Gentiles, all kinds of people, not just, not just the literate, but the illiterate, not just the free, but the slave, all kinds of people. We say, we understand these sentences, these passages uh, in their context. And Jesus said, if, if, if you lift me up, I will draw all men unto myself. We say, well, there you go. Lift him up. He's been lifted up. He meant by that how he would die on the cross. And so doesn't that mean that everyone will eventually see him? And as we read through the scripture, we find, no, that isn't the case. Even Jesus himself admits that no, not all will believe. He said, I'll die. But I'll draw all kinds of people to myself, not just here in Israel, but not just this generation, but through all generations and all kinds of people that he'll draw men to himself. The Apostle Paul, for instance, writes, in, in Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 10, he puts it like this. He says um, that uh, um, 
God has saved us, and, and this is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And you say, well, well if he's going to unite all things in Christ, as he puts it later in the book of Colossians, and he's going to restore all things in Christ, doesn't that mean that if there's this complete restoration that everything will come under the lordship of Christ in such a way that all will be saved? And he said, no, 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 that's not what Paul has in mind here. What Paul has in mind here is that everything's going to be going to be understood in Christ, summed up in Christ, that, that everything that exists both in, on the new earth and even in hell will be explained by Christ, will understand all of it because of him and through him. So you see, we do have these passages, but always there's this contextual explanation that fills it out. And, and here we are with this not only notion, but reality of both eternal life and eternal punishment in the midst of in the midst of all of that. And it isn't just those biblical passages. As we mentioned, there's this these philosophical notions uh, as well. The philosophical notion that God is love and therefore as love wouldn't he save all. One author puts it like this, he writes, the logic of the situation is simple. Either God could not or would not save all. If he could not, he's not sovereign. Then not all things are possible with God. If he would not, again, the New Testament is wrong, for it openly claims that he would have all to be saved. Nor would he be totally good. The total logic of the deepest message of the New Testament, namely that God both can and wants to save all, is unanswerable. So strong is this, that some who hold to this universalistic viewpoint have said this, to attribute eternal hell to God is literally blasphemy, the attributing of the worst to the best. Another put it like this, I'd rather be an atheist than believe in a God who accepts it as inevitable that hell, however conceived, is the inescapable destiny of many or of any of his children, even when they're prepared to accept all the blame. Now, you can see the passion but also the flaw in that statement. None of God's children will suffer eternal punishment. Those who are his children, according to scripture, are those who believe, Jesus said. The apostle John writes in the opening chapter of his gospel, that those who believe in him are the ones he gives the right, the authority, to be called, to become children of God. Uh, Rob Bell in his book writes that such a gospel that holds out any sense of eternal condemnation is toxic, deadly to the gospel. Yet, it seems, it seems so clear. Part of the difficulty, of course, is that we want to think that God is like us and that we are so loving that if we were really God, hell wouldn't exist. That if we put ourselves in God's place, then we would be so loving that we would save everyone because we think that he should be at least like us. But isn't that simply the arrogance of human beings? You remember the temptation in the Garden of Eden was a universal, universalistic temptation. Surely you will not die. Surely what God has said about the consequences of your sin, surely that won't be the case. You won't die, Eve. Don't worry about that. That isn't true. 
There'll be salvation even through the eating of this fruit from this tree that God has forbidden you to eat. It was a universalistic, universalistic temptation. And so what we really need to do is not trust in our own cleverness, but continue to trust in the scripture. And so let's go back to this passage in 1 Timothy in chapter 4 and ask that question. What is it that God could possibly mean by saying that he is the savior of all people, especially those who believe? Now, contextually, that is what Paul is writing about, is to try to encourage Timothy. Notice this verse 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God who... In other words, he's saying, Timothy, we're toiling and striving here. Now, those are words in Greek which are grit-your-teeth words. Those are words that say, Timothy, you're going to need to be strong here. Timothy, you're going to need to persevere here. You're going to need to toil. You're going to need to labor. You're going to need to strive. The word for strive in Greek is agonizomai, which means to agonize. Now, what Timothy is agonizing and struggling about, the same kinds of things that Paul was struggling and agonizing about, the same kinds of things you and I struggle and agonize about. First, as pastors, Timothy and Paul, they're agonizing about the fact, Timothy in particular, there were people in his church who were believing lies. There were people in his church who were believing false teachers. There's nothing that rips at the heart of a pastor more than that. So thank you, by the way, <laughs> for believing the truth. And Paul knew that. Paul was writing to Timothy and he says, listen, this is your lot. This is the, the life that you're going to experience in Ephesus in that kind of community at this particular point in time. And maybe for a long time, even after that, Timothy, you have to realize that there are people in the midst of your congregation who are spewing lies. These lies come directly from the evil one himself. And people who believe them are believing the teachings of demons. And to me, that's simply happening right in front of your midst. No doubt, it was gut-wrenching to him. And so Paul's word to him is, Timothy, don't have anything to do with that. And you realize what would happen when Timothy would have nothing to do with that. Or when Timothy, on other occasions, where Paul would say, Timothy, you need to go and correct that. You need to move these false teachers out of your church. You know what happened to Timothy? People would not like him. Some people might leave because of that. Some people would gossip about Timothy because of that. And he'd have to live in the midst of that all the time. You know, I know, that's really hard. It's really hard to sustain anything in the midst of that kind of environment. But that was the environment in which Timothy was, was pastoring, that kind of place. I don't think I would make it for a week. And Paul was saying, now listen, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to train yourself for godliness. I don't like for a, want for a minute for you to give in to any of that, not only the false teaching, but the feelings that come when people turn against you in the midst of that. Timothy, train yourself for godliness that you're going to hold true to the faith and you're going to live that out. It's going to require the same kind of training, the same kind of effort, the same kind of passion, the same kind of commitment, the same kind of discipline, the same kind of sacrifice as it would if you were training for the Olympic Games. That's what it means. That's how tough 
You have to be in the midst of this. And I'm sure Paul would add parenthetically, at least of Timothy, and ask him, well, isn't the Holy Spirit there to help me? And Paul would say, of course he is. I wouldn't be saying any of this if I didn't think the Holy Spirit would be able to lead you in this. But, 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 but still, Timothy, you have to realize it's going to feel like training. It's going to feel like you spend your days in the gym. So train yourself for godliness, Timothy. Don't give up. But he said, no, it's for this reason, that is, for the salvation of people, for the godliness of people. He says, it's for this reason that we stay after this, Timothy, that we toil and we struggle. It's for this reason, he says, because we've had our, we have our hope set on the living God. He says, listen, Timothy, don't have your hope set on yourself. Don't have your hopes set on your church. Don't have your hopes set on your strength. Don't have your hopes set on your wisdom. Don't have your hopes set on the culture. Have your hopes set on the living God. And why? Because he's the savior of all people, especially those who believe. What's that mean? Well, this first expression is an interesting one, as we've noted, I suppose, that he's the savior of all people. And various ones have thought this through in, in, in some kinds of ways. For instance, John Calvin holds a view that many hold of this expression, that when Paul uses the word savior, he isn't talking about savior in the sense of being saved from our sins, but using it in a very generic kind of way. We, we use the word save in all kinds of ways, right? We save money, we save the newspaper, we save leftovers, you know, saved to preserve them, to keep them. And so that's a very legitimate use of this term. It's used that way in other parts of the scripture. So so what Calvin thinks that Paul is communicating to Timothy is this. Timothy, listen. God preserves by way of his common grace all people. Even atheists breathe because God gives them breath. Remember the words of Jesus. He said, God causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on both the just and the unjust. In other words, God's preserving people all the time. And and so Paul's saying to Timothy, Calvin thinks, hey, look, God's preserving the lost. Those who don't believe in him, surely he'll preserve you. He preserves them, but he really preserves those who trust in him. So, Timothy, who have it on good experience and even what you're observing, that God will preserve you and God will keep you. There are others that think that this word salvation or God is the savior of all people, uh, and especially those who believe is in the sense of saved from their sins. So they come up with lines like this to say, probably valid to say, that in one sense he's the savior of all people, that is, The work of Christ is sufficient for the salvation of any who would believe. But it's especially true, really true, for those who believe. It's sufficient for everybody. If if one more person were going to be saved, uh, Jesus wouldn't have to die any more or shed any more blood. It's all been shed. It's all enough for all who call upon him. So so this offer goes out to everybody. It, It goes to all people. But really we know that only those who believe are saved. So Timothy, bear up. Buck up, you'll be able to do this. God will help you be, be, be hopeful because you know that as you pastor, as you share the gospel, as you teach, as you learn, as you grow yourself, that God saves those who believe. That's really true. 
Linguistically, there's a way to make it work as well. The little word especially can also mean namely or particularly or that is. Or if I were translating it, that is to say. That's my line. Uh, We see it in various other passages. And so the point being that God is the Savior of all people, and then, comma, Paul says, that is those who believe, namely, those who believe. For instance, in in chapter 5 and um, verse 8, Paul uses that word like this. He writes, but if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, that word especially again, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's generally taken like this. Paul's saying that if you don't provide for your relatives, and by that I mean members of your household, then... And then in verse 17, he uses it again. He says, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. In other words, Paul says to Timothy, listen, Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor. That is, as you'll notice in a minute, there's the ones who get paid. And he says, especially or particularly or namely those who preach and teach. And then in 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, Paul uses that expression again, verse 12. He says, Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, that's the word especially, and above all, the parchments. In other words, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring the the books. What I mean is, I want you to bring the parchments. And so what Paul is saying here, very well, might be this. That God is the Savior of all people, namely, particularly, specifically, that is to say, those who believe. That's true, we don't have a problem with it at all. But clearly what Paul is trying to encourage Timothy about isn't that everyone is saved. In one sense, how could that be encouraging? Now you say, wouldn't that be encouraging? And you say, well, yes, in one sense, but not in the life that Timothy's living. In the life that Timothy is living, all these people are against him because of what he's teaching. Paul isn't saying, oh, don't worry, it doesn't matter. Don't worry, they'll be saved eventually. Some of them will go to hell, but after a while, they'll get in their senses and and they'll be saved. Paul is saying, Timothy, hang on to this, my dear young friend. God will preserve you. God will save all those who trust in him. You, Timothy... Stay the course. You, Timothy, persevere. You, Timothy, believe. You, Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Don't get caught up in any of this. Because this way in which you're living is the right way. So he comes to us even as the very church of Jesus Christ. And he says to us this. God indeed is the savior of all people. Especially those who believe. Don't get caught up in anything other than faith in Jesus. Train yourself for godliness. This is the right path. This is the right way. You will persevere. God will preserve you. Trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that we would not get caught up in anything that is false. Father, we know the difficulties of the truth that we believe and we know how it affects others on the outside, some who receive it well and some who do not. Well, we know even the pain, this side of glory, that it brings us and confusion as well. But Father, we trust you. 
Father, we get it. We get that you're bigger than we are. We get that you're wiser than we are. We get that you are God and we are not. So, Father, we pray that you would enable us to persevere, enable us to train for godliness, enable us to toil and struggle with the hope to know that you save all those who believe in Jesus. May we be honest about the offer of the gospel. May we give it out to everyone. And may we walk in it. Father, there are those who are struggling today with various kinds of things. Wondering, I suspect some at least, concerning your love for them. And I pray that God that you would reveal yourself to all who struggle and all with difficulties in a way that they can see your love for them and trust in you. Show us Christ, Father, so that we see that well. Father, we pray for Melva Edmonds, who's recovering from surgery that removed a brain tumor this week. For Debbie Andrews, who's recovering from surgery as well. For Julie Kovar, as she ministers to her mom. And for others, God, who are struggling. Whether it be from physical ailments, whether it be from emotional ailments, whether it be from financial ones, whether it be from relational ones with friends or spouses or children or parents. So, Father, we pray that you would, in fact, be with us to preserve us, to keep us, to help us. And this, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, dominion, majesty, power, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. Without thy sweet mercy I could not live here. Sin would reduce me to utter despair But through thy free goodness my spirit's revived And he the first made me still keeps me alive Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart Which wonders to feel its own hardness depart is all by thy goodness I fall to the ground and weep for the praise of the mercy I found. 
And the covenant love of thy crucified Son All praise to the Spirit whose whisper divine Seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine All praise to the Spirit whose whisper divine Seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine Go in peace. 